Okay, I want to remind you, we are having the Youth Young People's Fellowship on Tuesday. Young People's Fellowship from 7 to 8 here at church. I think we're going to be meeting in here. So it uh, sounds like we might have some people coming. And we're enc- encouraged. This will be the first one. Please be praying if you're not a young person or not planning on coming. Please be praying for this fellowship. Uh, that It will be the first of many and a good chance for kids to gather and, and, and be helped. We want to be a blessing to them. So praise the Lord. Uh, let's turn to Jeremiah 14. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Jeremiah 14. As we scan the scriptures and we are looking at a text tonight that um, as I've been studying it I'm reminded and I was thinking of a, a axiom that we use uh, don't rock the boat and uh, you know what that means it means um, at least most people the context is uh, just you know don't cause trouble don't stir things up just let things be let the boat remain calm and, uh, and, of course, Jeremiah was not that kind of a person. And so the title tonight is, The Boat Has Been Rocked. And it's not by the false prophets. It was by Jeremiah. So uh, we're going to look at the first part of Jeremiah 14. Again, we don't have time. We're not going to go through every verse. But we're going to break down and look, look, look at the first few verses. And, um, in fact, verses 1 through 16 is, is what we're going to try to cover in the next half hour. Um, but again, rocking the boat. Uh, and I remind you that it is never popular to rock the boat. Uh, and sometimes it can be somebody that's a troublemaker and, and uh, is just being contrary. Sometimes it can be that there are genuine concerns. And when it comes to Israel's history, uh, often it was the good guys that were, called, that were considered the troublemakers. I remind you, uh, in 1 Kings 18, there had been a drought. And by the way, that's exactly what's happening here in Jeremiah 14. There is a drought. Droughts can be trials of living, but for God's people here, they were reproofs of life. God was sending this drought, and we're going to see it in a minute. But back in, in uh, 1 Kings 18, during the reign of King Ahab, there was a three-year drought that had been predicted or, and forewarned by Elijah. But Elijah didn't cause it. But when Ahab finally came to him, he said to, um, he said, art, when Ahab saw Elijah, he said, Art thou, are you he that troubles Israel? Here's that troublemaker. And uh, I love Elijah's response. He said, I haven't troubled Israel. You have. Because of your wickedness as the, as the king. Now, of course, there's no doubt, based on the response in, in Ahab's life, he wasn't buying that. He honestly believed that Jeremiah was, or that Elijah, rather, was the troublemaker. And in Jeremiah, we've already seen twice, and we're going to see it again today. In Jeremiah chapter 6 and Jeremiah chapter 8, uh, God condemns the false prophets, and they were many during this time in Judah. And here's what God said in, in Jeremiah 6:14, and he repeats almost the same thing in chapter 8, verse 11. Speaking of the false prophets, God says, "They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly." Now that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Who doesn't want people to heal the hurt of the daughter of my people? He's speaking about Israel, he's speaking about the Jews. 
The false prophets were the ones that were giving comforting messages. Healing the hurt of my daughter slightly. Saying, peace, peace. And then the problem is, and this is what the verse finishes with, it says, when there is no peace. You see, there's a time to keep the boat calm, and there's a time to rock the boat. And God's people needed to get, as we've already seen, they needed to have their attention captivated, and and they were now in the midst of great trials. So let's jump in in Jeremiah chapter 14, beginning of verse 1. The outline is, let me just give you the outline real quick, verses 1 through 9. Uh, when, the, when a boat is no longer the safe place. And then verses 10 through 12, when comforting words are of no value. And then verses 13 through 16, when the boat steadiers harm others. And of course, that would be the false prophet. So let's look at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the dearth. Judah mourneth. And so now, this is the word of God that is coming to Jeremiah Regarding the dearth, this this great blight upon the land, where all the vegetation had died, and it was you know it was drastic this drought. And verse two says, "Judah mourneth." And so the next few verses are going to be the experience of Judah. This is what Judah was going through. It says, "Judah mourneth, and the gates thereof languisheth; they are black under the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up." And their nobles have sent their little ones to the waters. They came to the pits and found no water. They returned with their empty vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded, confounded and covered their heads because the ground is chapped, or parched would be another word, cracked. For there was no rain in the earth. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yea, the hind, that's the female deer, also calf that had children in the field and forsook it because there was no grass. So there was no milk for the, the deers to feed their young. And so they would have their, their calves and then they'd have to forsake them because they could not nurse them. They, um, six, and the wild asses did stand in the high places. They snuffed up the wind like dragons. Their eyes did fail because there was no grass. So the same situation happened with the wild donkeys. And they also would forsake their children. So there was no water. This was dire situations. This was bleak. And now Jeremiah says, O Lord, verse 7, Though our iniquities testify against us. That's an important thing. Do thou it. Now this is this, when you study the context here. This is a plea for mercy. This is, for God. this is asking God for mercy. Do thou it. In other words, have mercy on us. Do thou it for thy name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against thee. That's, that's good. This probably Jeremiah acknowledging in much the way he has done. And other of God's leaders did. Abraham, Moses, Nehemiah. Uh, calling out, putting putting himself with the number and saying, Lord, have mercy on us. He says, uh, for our backslidings are many and we have sinned against thee. Oh, verse 8, oh, the hope of Israel, the Savior thereof in time of trouble. It's like, Lord, we're in trouble and you are the Savior in time of trouble. Why shouldest thou be as a stranger in the land and as a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night? It's like God has forsaken him. 
Why shouldest thou be as a man astonished or astonished as a mighty man that cannot save? Yet thou, O Lord, art in the midst of us. We are called by thy name. Leave us not. And so this seems to be the collective cry of the people of Judah who are experiencing the hand of God, his chastening hand. There is this extreme drought. Conditions are bad. And they are very much pleading for God's character of mercy to come forth. It, re- it would be very much like when Abraham prayed. Remember when Abraham prayed on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the cities in the plain, and he, he talked God down from 50 men, I think, down to 15, but he, he used this phrase. He says, speaking about if, he, if God judged Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed it, and killed the righteous with the wicked. And so Abraham would say, that be, far th- that be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And so this plea here is crying out, we know God is merciful. And so he's asking for that mercy. Here's the point. Yes, God is merciful. But is He only merciful? And is there not a time where He ends His mercy and begins the punishment, the the judgment? I'm reminded of uh, Paul's letter. In fact, let let me read to you part of Paul's letter in 2 Corinthians 7. I've mentioned this recently. You remember the story, there was someone sinning, um, an incestuous relationship in Corinth. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 5 addressing the issue, and now he's reflecting on this tough letter. He had some tough words for them. And he says, though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. The idea of that is he doesn't regret it, though he did regret it, did repent. He said, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. And we've already mentioned, anytime somebody rebukes someone else, even, you know, Galatians 6 says, if, if any a man be overcome in a fault, overcome in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So there are times when we need to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And we can do it perfectly right with loving motives. And there is still the risk that people are going to be hurt. And, and Paul understood that when he sat down to write this letter. And many times people have been rebuked and have not taken it well. And so he says, uh, I, you know, I, I originally regretted it, though I don't regret it. He says, I perceive that same letter, epistle made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now he says this, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. Jeremiah has been pouring his heart out to the people of Judah. And he's been very strong on them, very harsh, giving them God's word. And no doubt, Jeremiah, because he felt their pain, he was with them, he was grieving with them. No doubt, there was some battle going on in in Jeremiah. Like, man, am I being too harsh? Clearly he had that, because here in this chapter and in previous chapters, he has kind of questioned those false prophets. Like, you know, they said... 
there's going to be peace, like kind of second-guessing himself because he knows God's merciful. So there was, like Paul writing that letter, Jeremiah, you know, understood he's taking a risk. And then Paul would go on. He said, for behold, or, um, now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. In other words, it didn't end up harming you because you responded properly. Verse, 11, uh, verse 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And then he goes on talking about, they showed all the signs of being genuinely repentant. He says, Behold the self, uh, he says, um, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal. He went on talking. He was, they, they demonstrated all the right things. And then what I want to look, read to you is for, in verse 12, 2 Corinthians 7, 12. He said, wherefore, though I wrote unto you this letter, verse, uh, the first one that rebuked them. Though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong. When we read, like 1 Corinthians 5 and, and this situation, who was he doing it for? Ultimately it was so the church would, would discipline him and take sin seriously. But he said, again, he said, I, wrote it, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. That's significant. Paul was, when Paul wrote that letter, he wanted them to know. He did it for their care, that their care of, his care of them might be very clear. His care, his oversight, his spiritual concern, that they would see that before God. And, and that's exactly what Jeremiah was doing. You know, Jeremiah was not trying to win friends or influence people. Uh, he had a very negative message at a time when it was not the time to steady the boat. It was not the time to, to be a false prophet and say, peace, peace, and give love, and, and say, God is merciful, when God was getting ready to judge them. And that's what the... the False prophets were doing. Listen to this quote based on this first part. And uh, I love the way um, one commentator pointed this out. He said, the appeal of this text here, the appeal is a powerful one. and touches on the, or the important theological question of whether Yahweh would really act contrary to his character if he brought judgment on a rebellious Israel. That's, that's what the question is. You know, the, the appeal we just read is, hey God, in fact, in, um, oh Lord, your, our, next, our iniquities testify against us, verse 8. Oh, the hope of Israel, the Savior thereof in time of trouble. Why shouldest thou be a stranger in the land and as a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night? Why shouldest thou be a man astonished as a mighty man that cannot save? It's like, Lord, if you don't respond, you know, you're, you're, it's going to reflect on you. But was this a time where mercy was being offered? God is a long-suffering God, yes. But to take advantage and abuse that long-suffering is a serious thing. In fact, we're going to find out from God's response. He would tell Jeremiah, 
Stop praying for them. Stop praying for them. Because I am now going to judge them. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. And the the writer goes on. The next quote. Next sentence, rather. He said, It is arguable that judgment is as much a facet of the divine character as mercy. And perhaps Yahweh was just as much God of the covenant when He allowed the curses of the covenant to operate as when He allowed the blessings of the covenant to operate. Do you get that? The God of heaven, the God of the covenant with Israel was in Israel. Remember Deuteronomy. If you follow me and walk in my ways, the blessings. If you don't, the curses. Well, we all look at the blessings and think, wow, you know, what a blessing. But again, let me read this. This is very profound. It is arguable that judgment is as much a facet of the divine character as mercy. And perhaps Yahweh was just as much a God of the covenant when he allowed the curses of the covenant to operate as when he allowed the blessings of the covenant to operate. In other words, you can't blame this on God. God had been long-suffering. God had been merciful. God was sending them prophets, 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 preaching to them, pouring their heart out, doing strange things to get their attention. And they wouldn't listen. And now it's time for God to judge. But you know what? The false prophets, nobody wants to hear a Jeremiah when, when, when God is displeased. We want to hear those false prophets. We only want to hear good things. That's no different than today. There is a well-known preacher that I often pick on who smiles a lot. And sometimes I'll, I'll meet a, a, a believer, a professing believer, and they'll, they'll, they might be new in the Lord and they don't have a lot of discernment on what preachers are good. And they turn on the TV and they think, oh, this guy sounds good or this guy sounds good. And immediately they'll, they'll, they'll mention one or two of these People that are like red flags to me. I'm like, oh, oh, no, 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 it's not. So let me tell you about the smiling preacher. He was interviewed. This was a while ago, and, and he has not changed his message. Larry King interviewed the smiling preacher in 2005. And Joel Osteen said that he is not sure what happens to people who reject Christ. Here's a prophet, a pastor, a preacher. He's not sure what happens to people who reject Christ. King, Larry King, followed up with a question about Jews, Muslims, and other non-Christians. And and Larry King said this, they're wrong, aren't they? Osteen replied, well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches, and from the Christian faith, this is what I believe. Okay? Okay. But I, I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God. And I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. He says, I don't know a lot. He says, I know for me and what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. And so the, then Larry King and, and a caller, a couple callers gave him a few more chances to answer the question. But it kept coming back to the heart. Well, God knows. God looks at your heart. And so then Larry King asked him if he uses the word sinner. And Osteen replied, I don't use it. I never thought about it, but I, I probably don't. But most people already know what, uh, what when they're doing is wrong. Most people already know what when what they're doing is wrong. 
Jeremiah, come on, Jeremiah. Listen, Jeremiah, chill out. Come on. It, it, most people already know they're doing wrong. The Jews know that you don't need to get all radical and you're crying and you're weeping and you know you don't need to do all that because most people know they're wrong. I imagine those false prophets probably talked to Jeremiah that way. He says, when I get them to church, I want to tell them that you can change. And then he said that perhaps talk of God's judgment was for a time, a generation ago. But I don't have it in my heart to condemn people. I'm here to encourage them. I see myself more as a coach, as a motivator, to help, help them experience the life that God has for us, the best life. Can you imagine if people came along during Jeremiah's time, and again, that's what the false prophets did. Peace, peace. They healed the hurt of the daughter of my people. I imagine those prophets saying, I just want to be a coach. I just want to encourage. I just want to encourage God's people, the Jews. I just, you know, I want them to live their best life. And God's ready to send them into captivity and to upend their lives, many of them for the rest of their lives, because they would not hearken to the true God. Now look at verse 10. So we come to... Um, when comforting words are no value. Verse 10, Thus saith the Lord unto his people, Thus have they loved to wander. They have not refrained their feet, therefore the Lord doth not accept them. He will now remember their iniquity and visit their sins. When God says, okay, they walked away from me, they love to wander, they've not held back their feet, I'm not going to accept them, and I will now remember their iniquity. That is a very serious thing. And now look at verse 11. This is tragic. Then said the Lord unto me, Pray not for this people for their good. Wow. Now he's already said this, by the way. In Jeremiah seven fifteen, God said, I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. And then in Jeremiah 11, more recently in verse 14, Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up a cry of prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry unto me for their trouble. You see, there's a time for mercy, but we don't determine when that is. Don't forget that. You, we can go up to the Lord like, like this prayer here. Lord, you're merciful. You, you're our people. We're called by your name. When God gives us the opportunity for mercy. And by the way, when we have communion each time we have the Lord's table, until the Lord comes, we have mercy. And, and, but uh, there comes a time when God, and this was that time for the Jews, the mercy was done. The invitation was closed. And now God was proceeding with the enemy from the north, preparing his servant Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to learn all about him in this, in this book. He's going to prepare him to come as his servant, and carry out his chastening for his people. Now look at verse 12. Because this is the theme of the prophets even before Israel went into captivity. The other uh, tribes. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and an oblation, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. Those were often God's ways of chastening. The sword, the famine, and the pestilence. And so he's saying, you know, all those things which obviously God has challenged them to do. Pray, fast. 
He says, they're going to do that. I'm not going to hear their cry. Listen to, listen to some of these other verses. Back in chapter 6, in verse 20, he made, light, or made uh, reference to this. God said in Jeremiah 6.20, To what purpose cometh there to me incense from Sheba, and the sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet unto me. I love Isaiah. I'm going to do two other passages. Isaiah 1 is probably the longest. And this had already been preached to a nation just like Judah that didn't listen, Israel. It says in verse 11, God says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings. It'd be like saying, I'm fed up with it. Uh, Of the rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? In other words, why are you going through the religious motions when your heart's not right with me? And I'm preparing to chasten you. Verse 13 bring of, of Isaiah 1, bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me, the new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot, in other words, I can't handle it. Away with it. It is iniquity. And he goes on. By the way, in Amos chapter 5, he says the same thing. I hate, I despise your feast days. So our challenge is to realize that when God's mercy is available, we need to take it seriously. God said, my spirit will not always strive with men. And people love the fact that God is loving, and he is, or he never would have sent Jesus to Calvary. People love the fact that God is long-suffering, and He is. He has not rewarded us according to our transgressions. But that does not mean that He will not be just. And that there will not come a time when He says, okay, my mercy is no longer available. And that was happening to the Jews. Last point, verse 13. Then said I, ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say unto them, you shall not see the sword, neither shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Remember, they say peace, peace when there is no peace. And they accomplished something with that. They healed the hurt of my daughter slightly. Isn't that nice? It's not nice if you're not supposed to be healed, but you're supposed to address the wound. He says, um, the prof- uh, you shall not... You shall The prophets say, you shall not see the sword, neither shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Can you imagine being a prophet that is challenged with giving the exact exact message of that? The popular one? Can you imagine? I mean, all those other prophets are like, you're not going to have famine and sword. Jeremiah is just a... And you you have to go against that? No wonder why he was the weeping prophet. Verse 14. Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not. By the way, folks, just because someone claims to be a preacher of Jesus Christ does not mean that God has sent them. Neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination and a thing of naught and the deceit of their heart. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that prophesy in my name, and I sent them not. Yet they say the sword and famine shall not be in the land. By sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. What an amazing thing. One last verse, verse 16. And the people to whom they prophesy. In other words, the people that submit. 
people that listen to these false prophets shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and of the sword. And they shall have none to bury them, their wives, them, them, their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness upon them. It is important for you and I to realize that when it comes here, the boat has been rocked. And sometimes, if, if you like peace at all costs in your life, you don't want anyone to disturb the tranquility and you're looking for just, I just want a placid calm in my life. I want no one to disturb it. I don't want anyone to say anything negative. Then you have stopped growing as a Christian. I close with this. I've shared, I love, I'm not even going to give the whole story, but I love the story of the counselor. It was in a book that I read that I benefited from greatly. And it was uh, the parents of a 25-year-old boy, a man. Uh, in fact, let me just read part of it. It's, uh, and you, you, if you've been here for any length of time, you'll remember this. The parents of a 25-year-old man came to see me with a common request. They wanted me to fix their son. When I asked where he was, they said, oh, he didn't want to come. I said, why not? Well, he doesn't think he has a problem. And, and this guy replied, maybe he's right. Tell me all about it. And so the parents told them about all the things that the son did and how the parents kind of just tried to help him out, and it's, it's the one where at the very end, he says, he says to them, you know what, you're right. Bill, Bill doesn't have a problem. And the parents are like, they just laid out all his problems. But he, they also told them how, indirectly, they weren't mentioning this, or you know, they also told how they had really enabled him. And then I love this response, as you know. And this is, this has helped me, like, I, I need to hear this as well. They said, did you just say our son doesn't have a problem? And he said, that's correct. He doesn't have a problem. You do. Oh, that's tough. And they said, he can do pretty much whatever he wants. No problem. You pay, you fret, you worry, you plan, you exert energy to keep him going. He doesn't have a problem because you've taken it from him. Those things should be his problem, but as it now stands, they are yours. And then I love this. Would you like, this counselor says, would you like for me to help him to have some problems? <laughs> I just love that. That cracks me up. And I've never said that in counseling to someone, but maybe I should have. But that's what Jeremiah was telling these people against the advice of the false prophets. You know, they needed to have problems, and now they were having problems, and it was their only opportunity, and now it was too late. The judgment was going to come. Now, praise God, Jeremiah was not a prophet that just would say, you know, it's not like Jeremiah chapter 30 through the end is, uh, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so, you know, the whole thing. Uh, you know, he went into captivity with them, continued to minister to them. Uh, but what a message for us. Yes, God is merciful, but do not abuse that or presume upon that i think you remember king agrippa or, or some of the in, the in the book of acts almost thou persuadest me come back i'll hear you at another time one of the leaders said that's presuming upon god's mercy and you and i need to you know if it's getting saved you need to get saved today behold today now is the accepted time and there's so many people that think that are considering it I know people that have, that have responded and they've said, you know, I've I got to think through that. You know, like they understood there's something to it. And then they never addressed it and then they died.
Too late. You do not get a second chance. So let's remember, yes, God is merciful. But there comes a time when He must be just. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Help us to learn the lesson. Uh, Help us, Father, to understand that yes, You are merciful, but because You are just and righteous, You will chasten us as believers when we go astray. You will punish punish the wicked. Uh, But Lord, I pray that You'd help us not to presume upon Your mercy, but to take every opportunity to repent while it is time. And we thank You in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please take your hymn book.